Need a new set of optics? For more than a decade, Riton Optics has been providing optic solutions for hunters and shooters of all types and disciplines. Check out their Primal line for those products geared more towards us hunters. From binoculars and spotting scopes to your basic 3-9 to nine scopes and longer range crossover models, the Primal line from Riton was made for hunters. Learn more at RitonOptics.com. That's Riton, R-I-T-O-N, Optics.com. This is the OKS Hunter Podcast. Never pass on shooter bucks, because that's just me with the freezer. It's your tag, you hunt how you want. This is OKS Hunter. OKS Hunter podcast coming at you from the OKS Hunter studio. It always sounds louder here than it does when I hear it back, so I'm keeping it up. Okay. Uh, well, today's Tuesday. It's August 17th, so we're getting closer to bow hunting opener. We're a month away. A month away. It really is it the 17th. I, I didn't really look. I should, but I'm not going <laughs> to. All right. Sounds good, buddy. Well, uh, shout out to our... Sponsor, our primary sponsor, presenting sponsor, Spartan Forge. Um, I'm thinking we're going to do some really neat stuff with those guys soon. Uh, insofar as once we actually get our hands on the live app, we'll probably do some like some fun statistical, like, hey, on this day in 19 whatever, the weather was ABCXYZ because it can look at historical weather data. That's cool. So that'd be kind of fun to look at, or other stats that that thing can showcase. Yeah, it'll be nice to have. All those features under one app. Yeah, there we go. Can I hear you better now? I hope. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Good. So, Spartan Forge, check them out. It's SpartanForge.ai. Don't have a new discount code for you, so continue to use W2H if you would like to save some money. I believe it's 20% off for an annual membership, um, which is pretty great, or 20% off for the monthly, whatever it ends up being. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to some of our friends of the podcast. You see this, uh, the Drop Time Spirits bottle there, Backwoods Grind Coffee, and Latitude Outdoors. Greg and I are both going to be hunting out of one of those this season. I don't know about Greg, but for me, 100%. I'll have a few places I can use them, but not every place I'm going to go hunt can I use one. There so. you go. It'll be one of your tools in your tool belt. You got it. And we just sent the Latitude, Outdoor Method to, Latitude Outdoors Method 2 saddle, this is a mouthful, to publicly challenge because they were the winner from our first debut episode about two weeks ago. Certainly were. So I'm excited to see what they have to say about it also. So anyway. Who's our guest? We got a guest today. We got uh, none other than Garrett Prawl, the DIY sportsman. Garrett, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Good. How are you guys doing? Excellent. We're doing good. That music ended like the perfect time. (laughs) I didn't even plan that. (laughs) Practice. So DIY sportsman, uh, your YouTube channel is colossal. You've done a lot of product reviews. You are wearing the Spartan Forge hat. Uh, we both know Bill over there. You're putting out really great content you have for a long time, but also you're killing some pretty big deer. Yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, I, I would say that last year, um, you know, there's always a little bit of luck involved, but uh, I did put in a lot of work last year. It seems like every year I'm learning a little bit more. Where do you, I'm just going to, we're just going to dive right in, man. So we'll get some pleasantries towards the end. First of all, just so I call it out there for everybody tuning in live, um, we're, you're welcome to call into the show and ask Garrett questions throughout, but we're going to park some calls in the beginning. So hang in here with us for probably the first 15 minutes and we'll, we'll get to you guys and gals if you want to call into the show. Um, beyond that, anytime we say DIY, if you got a beer, take a drink. And at some point, we're hopeful that Garrett's going to tell us a joke. I don't know what it's going <laughs> to be. I'm not even sure if he has one, but this one's for you, Jared, when we get to it. Um, when you started to make that transition from like, I don't know, just being an a deer okay hunter. Hunter. Yeah, an okay hunter like one of us <laughs> to a serious hunter or an elite hunter, whatever you want to call it. What, what was that shift or that transition like, like mentally what happened? And then how did you kind of pursue that? Yeah, yeah, so was- I, think, I think like a lot of things that you can really get yourself wrapped up into, it starts with just kind of a desire to get to a certain place. And at least for how my brain works, 
once I kind of had that desire, whether it's, whether it's something in sports or whether it was like, you know, trying to become a better hunter, I had that goal in mind and I tried to figure out how to achieve that goal. And I get somewhat obsessed with it in the terms of I'm trying to absorb every little piece of information I can listening to podcasts, watching videos, reading books, reading magazine articles, and just trying to become somewhat of a sponge, but also be able to over time, learn to filter what information could actually apply or what information is good by also matching that with time spent out in the woods. And so really for me, it was, you know, that frustration when I was say like my mid teens, when we weren't, you know, really even seeing deer all that often on public land to really trying to dive in, learn as much as I could from, you know, mentor type figures, and then, you know, continue to apply more and more and learn each and every year so that, you know, by the time, like even now, I, I, the level of knowledge that I have now is so much more than what I had say 10 years ago. And it seems like there's never going to be a point where that really stops. It's not like you can really become like a master of all things deer hunting. Uh, So it's just kind of one of those things that just keeps fueling itself. Sure. Who was probably one of your biggest mentors? Do you think that's a good question? Yeah, probably, probably Dan Infault. Because mm-hmm. when I when I first started getting into it, that was kind of right when I don't know if you guys remember the original like the Bro- Blood Brothers Outdoors DVDs of which yeah. Dan, Dan was a member. Well, that was kind of right around the time frame that I started to really become serious and try and learn as much as I could. And you know, at the time on the forums, Dan was just I mean he was posting like 10, 15 posts a day answering every question um, that I might have had. And so I learned quite a bit from balancing ideas and just kind of reading the things that he would post on the forums and trying to apply that to what I was doing, which at the time was pretty applicable because I was also hunting cattail marsh type areas in Wisconsin. Cool. And you're in Minnesota now. So, yep. um, were you always in Minnesota or were you just, no, I grew up in Wisconsin and then I came here for college and stayed here afterwards. Okay. That makes sense. So I remember blood brothers. My dad used to watch that. I remember watching swamp bucks and hill country and all that stuff. Um, when he was showing me that stuff. So I didn't care about deer hunting much back then. I'm 35 now, so I don't know when that would have been, but I was like, yeah, cool, dad, whatever, <laughs> you know, it didn't matter. And now I'm like, oh yeah, that's all pretty pertinent stuff. But what were some of the things that you applied to become your, like your own style? Like, obviously you're not Dan in fault and you learn from him out of the gate, but you know, did you outgrow some of those things or some of those things not effective for you specifically? Did you kind of make some things your own and, and where else did you pull some inspiration from? So I think just kind of generally the way that my brain operates is I'm somewhat of a data guy and I try and make things, you know, somewhat analytical more so than I think a lot of times they need to be. And that's just kind of how I learn and how I can, you know, become better and kind of prove to myself whether or not something is actually working or if it might just be kind of a, a placebo effect type of a thing, you know. And so because of that, I have to complement whatever I'm learning with time spent out in the woods and see, okay, does this apply to where I'm hunting? Is this work where I'm hunting? And just kind of the way, again, that my brain operates and the fact that I'm somewhat of a visual learner, maps became just a massive, massive part of kind of how I learned and evolved as a deer hunter to where I'd spend, you know, and probably at some points hours a day, just kind of scouring over aerial photos, going through historical imagery, going through, you know, bird's eye or satellite versus aerial photos. Um, they even have, you know, kind of day by day satellite imagery that's lower resolution than you can look at now, as well as topos and everything else you can, you know, come up with LIDAR that, that gives me a really good picture. And then from all the things that I hear from other people about what their experiences are, I can kind of apply that to the mental picture of what, you know, topography or what the land might look like, and then balance that out with my own experiences. And it just becomes this, you know, ever evolving loop of kind of trial and error. Uh, to figure out what works best for, for me and my style and, and where I'm hunting. That's a, do you have any like resources that you recommend when you talk about some of those day by day, you know, lower resolution photos are different. Are you using yeah. different The one that I know of right now is, I believe it's called Sentinel Hub. And it, I, I will preface it, it is very low resolution, but it's high enough resolution that you can tell, like, say for instance, if there's an active logging operation, and something's being clear cut and it's just like bare dirt you can tell like okay it's like light tan here and you can pick it on a day that there's like less than 10 percent cloud cover or whatever and you can see here's the edge of the clear cut here's where they haven't cut yet or 
here it's tan and here it's like light green. So this is like a one-year-old clear cut. And so when I'm scouting like Northern Wisconsin, where there's more logging, uh, that becomes pretty useful when I'm not always like there to be able to actually see it on foot. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really powerful, especially if you're going to consider out-of-state hunts. Um, someone asked the same question I did. Doug Leary asked, where are you going for the day-by-day satellite? What's it called again? I'm going to just put it in the chat. Sentinel Hub. Yep. Sentinel-Hub Cloud API for satellite imagery. You just Google it, Sentinel Hub with an S. All right, I'm going to put that in the chat for those that are tuning in. And anybody that's listening in podcast land later, come check out our Facebook live video and you'll find it there on the OKS Hunter Facebook page. So I could put a link there for everybody. That's pretty awesome, man. That's a really good way to capture intel, especially if you're doing out-of-state hunts. Um, I had another question packed in there before that one came up, which was kind of, you know, one of the one of the things I really wanted to tease out here is if you're, and I might be skipping ahead a little bit, but if you're, you know, whatever, I'll use myself as an example and a couple of buddies, you know, we got a couple of kids. I got a third on the way. Um, I got a couple of businesses and a day job and I, I love hunting. So if I could quit everything and just do that, I would, but, uh, their life is life. So for me, I have limited time to get in the woods. And sometimes that time is it's static. Like it's not dynamic. I can't just drop and go because the wind's right this day or what have you. Um, if I have to only go on Sunday or something like that, maybe I'll go during a Packer game or whatever. When the variables aren't in your favor, what can you control? Like, what are you doing uh, that maybe some of us can learn from some of us OKS guys? Yeah, when I'm limited on time, which is especially the case kind of later in the season as we get shorter and shorter days, you bump into daylight savings time. It's not like I can really dip out of work early and still drive however many hours and get in, you know, another 45 minutes access to get a good hunt in. And so it ends up becoming more of a, you get a Saturday and you get a Sunday and hopefully the weather's good both of those days. And so the things that I can control is where I'm hunting and what my expectations are and how much scouting I do outside of the season. And so probably the biggest learning thing for me is when I started out, I put a, a very high, um, just like a ton of weight on the postseason scouting what I was learning in the, in the winter, learning in the spring. And it's really easy to, to pick up on rut sign during that time of year. And it's really easy to pick up on betting. And sometimes it's like only winter betting. Sometimes it's actually betting that they're using in the fall or, or summertime. It just kind of depends on what the topography is. But I would go in and I would scout these areas in the spring and I would scout those areas in the winter. And I would formulate kind of this picture and I would visualize this all playing out. And I'm going to sit right here and the deer is going to come from right there. And I would just mark that all those notes in, in my you know journal. And I would be able to almost put too much of an emphasis on that when the season would actually come to where there was times where for opening day, I already knew where I was planning on sitting despite not really paying, even knowing at that point, like what the weather was going to be or what the active food sources might've been. And so what I've learned to do now is I, I need to take more like that day Intel more, kind of real-time information uh, sign that where I scout my way in and then it kind of morphs where I, I'm going to sit. And so big properties really help with that, I feel like, because if you have a north wind or a south wind and you're hunting a place that's 200 acres and you've only got like one best tree for a north wind and like one best spot for a south wind, you're kind of limiting yourself there to where you're forcing yourself to where if you are going to hunt on that limited time, number one, it doesn't really matter what the in-season sign says because you're only probably thinking about you're going to hunt in one of those two locations. Um, but it also just makes it really hard to have like a plan B, plan C. Whereas on a bigger property, you have a little bit more kind of margin for error or forgiveness because you're less likely to stumble in on a place where some other guy was hunting like during the week that you just didn't know about. And it also gives you opportunities to say, okay, I'm going to start by spot checking this area, my plan A spot. But if that ends up not having fresh sign, then I'll just keep walking to spot B and keep walking to spot C. And so I might have on like an early season hunt, for example, I might have four potential spots that I'll work my way through. And if spot A looks really good, then I'll just set up right there. But like on opening day last year, for example, I was hunting with my wife, Sam, and we were in a, a local cattail marsh here. And we knew that this one particular island out in the cattails had a couple of giant white oaks on it. 
and had a ton of rut sign. So we're thinking, okay, like there's a chance that deer could be bedding close. Like it could be a good early season spot too. If, if those white oaks are dropping, we go out there, we get to that Island and there's some deer sign. There's some tracks. There's some dried up droppings. There's a few acorns on the ground, but not any of the white oaks. It looked pretty dry. And so we're like, okay, well, let's go on to that next Island. So we go out to the next Island. It's more of the same. Go on to the, the next Island, number three, more of the same. And at that point, we only had one Island left to kind of check into. And this one was kind of surrounded by brush. So we walked to that fourth island, and again, the, the sign was a little bit, you know, dry. There hadn't been a lot of moisture to kind of um, really get some good, fresh tracks on the the ground itself. But you can see that there's some acorns laying on the ground, some red oaks that were starting to drop. And at that point, it was like, okay, well, we got nothing to lose. We're, you know, this far back in, we might as well set up or go back to the truck. Like, those are our two options at that point. But it seemed like of the four spots, the best one. And so we ended up setting up there and half hour before dark three bucks ended up getting up in that brush surrounding the island started staging and worked their way right up onto the islands and you know stood within shooting range for about 10 minutes as legal shooting light passed and so that was an example of something where seven eight years ago i might have just hunted that first island based on what i found in the spring or in the winter and just under kind of the hope that it was going to be good uh whereas now much more likely to to try and read it as i go and I think when you have only limited days, like a Saturday or Sunday, you have to be open to hunting whatever's the freshest that particular day. Uh, another thing that we started doing is when we're going out on those evening hunts, we're getting out there early. Like our average hunting trip in Wisconsin last year for an evening setup, we would leave at nine to 10 in the morning and we get there, you know, noonish, and just start walking into whatever area. And our plan would just be to do kind of like a speed loop. And we'd be checking areas that were adjacent to other areas that we had scouted in the spring. So we're not going like right into the heaviest cover, but we're checking logging roads. We're checking transition lines, looking for big tracks, looking for scrapes and rubs that were popping up in areas that even though we weren't going to hunt there necessarily, we were going to do that speed loop and see what kind of looked the best in those adjacent areas and then decide where to dive into. And that oftentimes would give us just enough time to be able to still do all that work and then be able to make a decision and dive in and sneak into that actual spot that we wanted to get real nice and tight up into. And probably what that's going to end up leading to next year, because that just, it got really draining uh, after a long time was especially considering in some of these places you can leave stands overnight is we'll probably get into an area set up in the evening sit and then just leave our saddle platforms up in the tree, get out camp, and then go right back in there in the morning, hunt there for the morning, and then take our stuff back down and just start scouting right in again for the evening and just kind of spend the whole day out there. And I think that's really going to allow us to maximize our time. And again, maximize the amount of real-time information that we're getting. Cause I think in, in all the scenarios, it's like, you got to have both. It seems like, like it's like that trifecta where if you have the in-season scouting you have the mapping and you have the real-time information then between those three things you can kind of get a pretty good picture of where is the best spot to be able to set up on that particular day i feel like you got anything to there greg or say Mm -mm. defer to you for some of these things you know you told me last year we went out and you said I didn't go far enough. And I thought I was hunting when I perceived to be fresh signs. So for me, it was a bit of a tug of war because I'm like, well, this looks like really fresh sign. It's always a gamble. So do I pass it and to keep pushing for sake of pushing? Um, or do I stop and hunt this fresh sign? And we were in a good area. I mean, we were, we were in a spot where there wasn't a lot of pressure. Um, we were perceivably far enough back based on our access to a property. Anyone else accessing it would have had to, really push their limits physically to get to where we were, but we had uh, a nice little access point that no one else did. So it put us further back. So it was an interesting sit because had I moved in a little bit further, I would have been on some deer, but I, but I wasn't. And then on another sit in the same area, I, I got eyes on a couple of bucks and some real dandy ones at that. And that was a game of inches. Really. I could have been just a little bit closer and I would have had a potentially a shot, but that was really tough. It was so thick and nasty that, 
you, then you start to wonder, am I going to bump something? And so for that fourth Island that you got to at any point, were you thinking if I bump something, am I going to mess up this hunt for the night? Or are you confident that if you put up somewhere that you're still going to see something? The key there is getting in early. I mean, sure. He, so you're in early enough. They're not. Yeah. So you bump a deer. I mean, deer get up and run off. They smell something. They hear a coyote mm-hmm. and you'll hear all the big names in hunting of, of public land. That's what they'll tell you anyway. But I've seen it happen. I've seen deer get bumped out by coyotes and go, well, probably not going to see anything now that those coyotes ran through here. Wrong. The deers did come back and it might've been another group of deer that came through that knew that was a bedding area anyway. It's a good point. You get in there early enough. Yep. Well, I mean, the thing yeah. with the, I missed it was, he came out after a bunch of pheasant hunters just had passed through. It mm-hmm. wasn't mere minutes until he decided it was good to go. Right. So maybe yeah, I know. I, I, I see know. that. I see that quite a bit too. Like occasionally you see it in the woods with like the coyotes, like you mentioned, but I'll see it a lot of times on trail cameras too, with bears where, I mean, bears probably aren't killing a lot of adult deer, but they'll, they'll kill fawns if they have the opportunity. And like, even now I'm getting daylight pictures of bears in some of my spots and you'll see a big boar walk through. And then a half hour later, there's a donut fawn that's walking past the same way. Like they just kind of live with that stuff. And they're, I, I think they have enough of an awareness and they use their senses well enough to where they don't have to be a hundred miles away from the nearest danger. They just kind of have to keep tabs on where the danger might be. And so in those types of scenarios, I feel like based on how those islands set up in that particular example, the islands are really dry, really open. You could see clear across one end to the other. And so the deer weren't betting on those islands. There wasn't enough security cover, but they were betting in the brush and some of the, the taller areas that had little cattail clumps around it and dogwood and, and I guess shrubbier islands. And so there'd be areas where it's like, okay, if we're going to go from this Island to this Island based on the wind direction, if there's any deer bedded in this chunk, we're going to blow them out. And that's just like, that is what it is. But if they're betting in this other one, we're still going to be set up good. And so as we kind of went along there, that was just kind of the decision-making process. And when we're going up on those more wide open islands, if we get to the edge of it, we kind of sit there and assess glass, look for acorns on the ground before we're actually walking up there, look to see if we can glass any droppings. And if it looks like there's just not a lot of sign and like the trails leading up to those islands just aren't super hammered, then I'm, I'm more likely to just start, you know, walking across rather than if I start seeing sign right up on that island, as soon as we get up there, then, okay, maybe this, you know, little chunk of bedding that's 80 yards away, maybe that could be in there and we should just kind of, you know, sidestep a little bit and set up right here instead of trying to push too far in. It's a, it's a tough balancing act. Yeah. I think that's the, no the risk. way to say it. It's a balancing act. No risk, no reward. You're going to end up. We bumped one. We got real close to the canoe, me and Joel last season, and mm-hmm. we were in an oxbow, which is something that you know, I heard Dan Infault talk about and a few others. And, um, you know, that wasn't really the full objective. It was just, it made a lot of sense from an access standpoint and an area that we wanted to get to and do a little bit of exploration, but we felt that it held some deer. Well, it did because <laughs> when we got there, you know, maybe we weren't, we were quiet, but it, that deer knew something was coming down that river. And as soon as we kind of turned a bend, we saw a really nice wide, wide buck stand up and then haul ass out of there. And he was bedded right in that oxbow and this tall stuff. Um, but there was like, well, shit, there was no other way to get back there. There just wasn't. There was no way to get around the private piece that was there. You had to get it by river. And at that point, there would have been no good way to get into that particular area. So that deer is probably going to be good for a long time. I don't know how I'm going to get that deer. Whatever deer decides to bed in that area is pretty well protected. So, yeah, yeah, that's a common thing I hear too from guys like guys that are, are, have been consistent, bigger buck killers for a long time. They'll oftentimes tell you that when they find not just like any buck bedding area, but like the more older mature buck bedding areas, you get in there so often and you're like, I don't know how to set up on this. And that just seems to be kind of that common theme. Like he's there because it has been working for him for a long time. And I also don't think that they bed in the same, like that's, that specific example, he probably, he's probably not been there all the time, but for whatever the set of conditions were, like he was, he's going to be fine every time that, you know, those conditions are there. He's going to be able to sense that danger coming. Yeah. It was one of those things where I think it was a later season approach. A lot of the public pressure pushed him through the private and then to a sliver of public that was on the backside that was accessible by canoe. 
And I was like, man, if there's deer back here, this is where they're going to be. And it's really good to get that affirmation that, holy shit, we were right. That was a really nice buck to lay eyes on. I mean, we're kind of like grabbed our bows. Like, can we, can we, it's legal to shoot from the canoe here in Wisconsin, by the way. So, but it wasn't possible uh, in this particular instance, unfortunately. But it's good to know that, hey, at least we're on the right track. You know, that that's half the battle is getting that affirmation. So you can, like you said, you're data driven. So if you get that piece of intel, that's data. And now you can use that for next time. And you can affirm that these choices were correct for these reasons. And these weren't just, you know, correlation. There's actually causation there. And I was going to ask you, you said you mentioned you're keeping a journal. Like, what are you using when you're in the field? Are you using pen and paper or using your smartphone or using uh, Spartan Forge now for that? Or what, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I, I will be starting to use Spartan Forge for that because it'll just be integrated nice and easy. Uh, but it's been for me kind of a combination of, I'd say less pen and paper and, and more just phone based. And then I'll transfer some of those notes to the computer. So it's just easier to access. Um, a lot of times the notes that I'll take in the field might just be like quick little bullet points. But then when I get home, I might type it out to where it's a little bit more information. So I just try and type that in real time. Um, cause I still got a pretty good idea, obviously like the night of, um, yeah, so fresh. Yep. Yeah. It's like doing a job, right? You got to clock your time and say what you did or log your hours. If you're in it or something like that as an example, it's like, well, if you don't do it that night, you're not going to remember the next day. You better, you better brain dump that shit real quick. Yeah. Yeah. If you get past like two weeks, like I always, I always feel like when I have an experience, it's like, how am I going to forget this? And then two years later, it's like, man, did I hunt that tree or that tree? <laughs> There's no way I'm going to forget this. It's <laughs> not even possible. And then you're like, it's almost when you go to say, I'm going to put this thing right here because this spot is so unique. I won't forget it. And that's the worst thing you can do. <laughs> you'll, where the hell did I put it? It's I put it somewhere that was going to be good, but now it's too good. I can't remember. And then uh, I find my keys a week later. There they were. Yeah, that made sense at the time, but I totally forgot. That's funny. Yeah, you yeah. guys brought up that example of the the buck that you jumped when you were in the canoe on yeah. that expo. And it, it's kind of interesting that you brought that up because last year, more than any other year, I felt like just like what we we're talking about for the last, like whatever, how many minutes about how a lot of times they're choosing those particular bedding areas because it's working for them. I was trying to jump deer last year more so than I have in the past. Um, cause I mean, if, if I jump like a doe or whatever, um, it's, it's not always that big of a deal, especially if it's like super windy. I find it like the super windy day, especially the early season, like I'll jump a yep. doe and then like 60 yards away, there's like a deer that's still there. So a lot of times I'll jump a deer and be like, Oh, I blew it out. And then I'll keep walking. And I jump up another one that was there the whole time. Um, a lot of times I'll see him just sit there and let you walk right past him. Um, I filmed a, fi- a video clip this summer like a, a two minute video clip where I was just talking into the camera on the edge of a clear cut. And then I, I turned and took one step toward the woods that were 10 yards away and deer popped up. It was sitting there watching me the whole time. Um, but to circle back the, the, the deer I ended up shooting, I couldn't, I didn't know where he was betting, like where his ranges of, of beds were, but I would see a sign in a lot of these particular areas. And I knew what scrapes, I knew some of the scrapes that he was hitting on a fairly regular basis. And so every time we go into the woods, I would try to bump them out because I felt like that was like the most valuable piece of information that I could have. If I could figure out exactly where I was betting, then I could start to formulate a plan. And it just so happened that the day I ended up shooting them, I think we, we'd gotten to an area where we hadn't walked before. And I don't know if he was actually betting there or not. Uh, that particular day, he probably was just, you know, cruising for does. I think that particular day in November, but it was that kind of mindset and mentality of, we got to, we got to figure this out. And like that allowed us to find that really good betting area. Even if he wasn't betting, there was, there was definitely a deer betting there. Cause we found a big bed on the edge of a beaver swamp right up next to a log with a just thigh shredded rub there. So he could have been betting there for all we know, we just can't confirm it. Um, so having that piece of Intel, even if we hadn't pulled it together, that hunt, we would have been able to formulate a plan in that area based on that that information we gathered that day, just kind of scouting our way in and scouting midday to try and get that most recent information. It's exciting. I have, uh, I've gotten access to a few different properties through a conservancy lottery, um, over the years. And, and the properties change as far as what I've access to. They have a number of them, but you might draw for this one or that one. And so over the years, I've been able to hunt a number of them, but one year in particular, I got to hunt one where I've never seen more bucks 
on a single or multiple hunt ever. And I was like, this is what it's like. I was finally like, holy shit, I'm seeing bucks. This is incredible. I was so excited. So I watched one bed for a long time. I watched two kind of meander towards me. And uh, I remember calling my dad and being like, this piece is incredible because he had access to it also. We both drew. And uh, I was like, I've never seen this many bucks before. This is, And they were like, to me, at least, especially at the time, they were all shooters. I was I was jacked about it. If anyone would come by, I would have you know probably missed. But it was exciting to, to see him. But then on a hunt where we were both out there, we kicked up. What, what I could imagine was only a buck. It was a single deer. It sounded like a freight train coming through this brush. And then so looking back on it, hindsight, I now know where those deer were bedding. And you're right. They were in like a thicker, clumpier, snarly kind of area. Um, but even knowing that today, if I had access to that property for this season, which I don't, I would wonder, well, where are they going to go when they get up from their bed? Which direction are they going to head? And the bucks that I got to um, observe back there, they're all going different directions, which I found to be kind of interesting. None of the two, were, there were three of them on the first sit and they were all doing different things. And so it was earlier season. It wasn't like they were motivated by the rut yet. And so I'm just thinking, are they going to different food plots? So even if you identify bedding, you still need to figure out like how you're going to set up on it and where you think you could intercept them. It, it might not always be food, will it? Looking at Greg too here. I don't know. They're pretty driven with food, man. And or, or maybe water it's just source. this water source, but there's water yeah. all around there. So no, I don't no, know. If there's water all around. If they can just stand up and drink from a little low spot in the swamp, they mm-hmm. will. You know, they'll drink a little stink water. <laughs> yeah. And if you got that, if you got that like shrubby or stuff that they're bedding in, I mean, you'll see them stand up and they'll just, it'd be like a little 10 acre pocket of that brush that they're betting in and maybe they're betting on what edge of it and they'll just get up and they'll just meander around and they'll just, you'll just see them in there browsing on leaves that are hanging yep. off the trees and, and, yep. you know, yep. look, so munching on Forbes, Forbes and stuff. And you got this, this Oak Island right next to it. That's got all these acorns on it, but they're waiting until dark to hit that. They're just meandering in and around these, you know, feeding on browse. And I think it's the same thing in some of the areas without a, without as many acorns without ag is that, or even areas where the acorns are just kind of more generally spread thoroughly throughout the land. Um, Missouri is like that. For, there's just acorns everywhere. Um, but it seems like to me, the further you get away from the bed, much less predictable they are. And, and perhaps in areas where you have a really isolated food source, like late season on a crop field or early season on a hot white oak tree that's the only one dropping around. Like, I feel like that movement can get really predictable, but when you don't have that really isolated food source, then I think the browse power just allows them to be much less predictable. Same kind of thing I see like, uh, in Wisconsin with the, the scrapes, you'll find these scrapes that are just torn up, um, and they're secluded, they're surrounded by doe bedding, but then you'll hang a camera on it and kind of monitor it. And you might find that one particular buck, he's only hitting it like once every four days. And it might be different times of the day. And you think, man, he's got to be better close here. Why isn't he just like getting up and hitting the scrape every day? But then like one day it'll be one buck. And then the next day it'll be like two different bucks. And they're all kind of cycling through and using those areas. And the does are too. It'd be like, you know, one of those typical community scrapes that you might find. Um, but it definitely doesn't seem like, even though you think you're close to that bedding, it's always predictable to where they're doing the same thing every day. Cause that would make it so much easier. Um, and you hear guys talk about that a ton about how you get that bed to food or that bed to whatever that closest scrape is. But it seems like that in reality is, is less common, I think, than we'd like it to be. Yeah. Which is part of the damn challenge, (laughs) right? That's like time in is the one thing you can't replace. There's no shortcut to just getting out there and studying these things and learning and and putting the time into and, and there's luck. Luck is a big part of it too. I mean, to say that deer goes this way, not that there, there's a little bit of luck in that, but the more times you can be, I think, right about your assumptions and things of that nature, you're going to find yourself in the, in the right spot more often than not. Hopefully that's the case as we kind of progress and learn as deer hunters, because a lot of people are just, I mean, we all, you remember before you knew this stuff, you're just out there, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm better off going to that fourth Island because I'm not going to just hope that this is a good spot. I can't tell me times the younger hunter and still to this day, I'm like, well, this, if I were a buck, I'd be here. This looks good. Mm-hmm. I, I maybe he'll just come right through here. And then you just hang your hat on that, hang your stand on that tree. And you're, you're like, all right, let's see what happens. 
I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. Most people know that, by the way, but I'm trying a lot of different things. I'm experimenting and I'm trying to learn. And sometimes you have to take a couple steps back to take a, a leap forward and you have to regress a little bit. So if you're, at least if you're trying to do something a little bit different, you know, like you said, maybe when you're younger, you weren't seeing much deer at all versus, um, you know, seeing bigger ones and so forth. So yeah, I was, but I listened to another, a couple of podcasts today. So maybe I'm getting something jumbled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was listening to Johnny Stewart this morning on Whitetail Legacy. But yeah, we, we used to get excited seeing a doe that was running through the woods when somebody would also would kick it up. Like, oh, we saw a deer today. Like, that was pretty exciting. Yeah, that's I was like, holy shit, they do. <laughs> yeah, it was exciting when you first started out and you weren't seeing anything or you, you know, you're doing what you thought was right, sitting in a certain area. Yeah. And, and I get to peeling by. I, I get to see that a little bit with my wife now because she's, well, this will be her third year hunting. But like, especially that first year, just like any deer that we see, just like seeing that level of excitement. And now she's gotten to the point where I think she's, she still likes to hunt with me, but she's self-sufficient enough that she's making good enough decisions. Like if she hunted by herself, she would get on deer. Um, so it, it's definitely, if you have that attitude that you're always trying to learn and, and make yourself better and try and make the right decisions, I feel like it's just a matter of time and, and you know, the stars got aligned, but if you're doing the right decisions, you're just up in your odds. And maybe instead of 5% chance, you're 25% chance. Well, you roll that dice enough times, you're going to get, you're going to get it right. That's pretty cool. I wrote, um, an article for the website the other day and it, I referenced, uh, Frank Shamrock, who, when he was training us fighters, he talked about the, a system he called the plus plus minus in equal plus minus equal system. And so far I've gathered your, your plus I've gathered your minus. I don't know who your equal would be necessarily. Maybe it's some of the pro staff you're on with uh, Spartan forge, but it's interesting to consider your level of hunting and the fact that you are, are doing just that, um, whether intentionally or not. So plus is you find someone that's further along than you are on your journey. That's, you know, uh, maybe an exemplar of something. So if it's in your case, it was Dan Infault, it sounds like so someone you can learn from. And then the, on the minus, it's someone you can teach some of the things that, you know, cause you're absorbing the information differently. And then the, the equals is who's, who's equal to you that you can kind of spar with that you can really affirm some of those beliefs and like challenge yourself. Um, so you're not getting that like, well, if I hunt with, if I was, if I was a newbie and I hunt with infault all the time, I would feel like I suck at deer hunting. I would never shoot <laughs> anything, <laughs> but obviously the only thing enough to teach someone yet. So it's interesting. Who would you think would be one of your equals in the space? Hmm. Mm, I don't know. That's a, that's a, a good question. I feel like the, the equal category is, is very, very broad. Like there's a lot of people that I feel like I could have a discussion about deer hunting on and we could like drive on the exact same stuff and, and talk about the same things and, and have a very similar, you know, knowledge base and experience set, like probably too many to count. Um, and, and on the pluses side of thing, I'm always trying to, I'm always trying to find more like really good people that I can pick their brains. And it's funny cause like the people who I feel like are, you know, closer to kind of my experience level. Those are the guys I'm talking to most often. And it's almost like when I want to ask a question to one of those guys, who's like an expert in the field, whether it's like a Johnny Stewart for, you know, Northeast big woods uh, or an Andy May for, you know, weekend, like, or just two day type hunts. It's almost like, okay, is this question like worthy enough for me to ask? Like, am I going to be wasting their time if I ask this you know question? And the good, the thing I find is that a lot of these guys who are sort of experts or they've been doing this a really long time and, and they're the guys who would be most qualified to answer those questions. So often they're just extremely willing to share whatever information that they have um, and, and really be helpful. And, and so more and more, I feel like I'm able to just kind of reach out and get information from a lot of uh, different people, especially ones that are trying to do whatever it is I'm trying to do. Like I'm gonna go out and hunt in the plains in Nebraska. So I've been trying to expand my network and trying to ask questions for a lot of different people who have done that, you know, sand hills, great plains, more open ground type of hunting, just so that I can have a better idea going in. That makes sense. You know, I think that's what a lot of our listeners won't ask questions because they're like, oh, I want to ask the right question. And then they end up like, oh, now the moment's passed. 
So just to touch on that, by the way, folks that are tuning in, because we have a few folks that are watching live, if you want to call to ask a question or comment in the chat, um, feel free if you have questions for Garrett about anything about your style or his or, or kind of maybe where you're hunting. Obviously, we're talking out of the Midwest. Greg and I are in Wisconsin, for those that don't know, and um, Garrett's in Minnesota, but he's, he's from Wisconsin. So really Midwestern style. Um, depending on where you're at in the state, there could be some hills involved. There could be some swamps. There could be some ag. We'll have quite a bit of a, a diverse hunting terrain here throughout the the midwest yeah we do let's switch gears a little bit and maybe talk some gear garrett what's one of your favorite pieces of gear it's kind of a broad mm. question but yeah it's a broad question for sure um <laughs> all I'd right i'm going to narrow it down a little bit top three things you top, can't live yeah, without top three things you would take out with you that you can't live without well, I, I think it'd be tough for me to hunt the way I hunt without some type of climbing method, which in my case is sticks. Um, can I lump the whole, like, just climbing hunting system into one thing, like sticks, sure. platform, saddle? Like, yeah. That's, that's pretty instrumental for, for how I hunt. Mm-hmm. A, lot of times, a lot of times I'm hunting out of a tree, and it's, it's not always a telephone pole tree. It could be a pretty gnarly tree. It could have weird little offshoots little flags going all the way up the tree knotty bark lots of little you know limbs and and it could be an aspen tree could be a, a tamarack tree I, I shot a deer out of last year um or i could just hunt on the ground and i feel like that system you know where i have a saddle i have a platform and climbing sticks with an aider that allows me to do basically anything i'd want to do in terms of setup and that allows me to not feel like i overpacked if i am just going to hunt off the ground and at the same time, if I was maybe planning on a ground hunt and I find that, oh, like this is a better tree for me to set up in, I'll climb. And that gives me the versatility. Nice. What's, uh, what's your stick of choice right now? I'm using the tethered one sticks, like okay. carry three, three of those. And then I have an aider that I sewed up. Um, so if I wanted to, I could get 24 feet to the top of the third stick, but typically I'm not spreading them out that far. I might get, you know probably more realistic, like six and a half per stick. And a lot of times that's as high as I need to get. And I'd almost be more apt to just carry a fourth stick as opposed to trying to make the eighter longer and really stretching them out. And it's only an extra, extra pound. So that was, that was one thing that I've started to, I've started to lean more towards things that just have very little fiddle factor and they just work and I can do them with my eyes closed in my sleep. And then it's less worrying about, fiddling around with gear in the moment and more about like awareness of my surroundings and the actual hunt itself. I like that term fiddle factor. Mm -hmm. That's something that I'm trying to omit (laughs) for me. Yep. Keep it simple. Yeah. I've been saying I'm looking, I've been looking for a system. I found one, so I'm excited to get at, get at that this season. But, um, I like the fact that your platform and saddle and stick setup is minimal enough that if you wanted to hunt off the ground, you're not feeling like you're this giant sign sitting there. You still feel nimble enough that that's going to work for you. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll tuck my platform inside my pack and then the sticks, as long as I'm not having to bring in a whole bunch of extra clothing, like the sticks compress pretty tightly down onto the pack. To where it's really, I mean, the bulk is is negligible. Really, the, the bulk only comes into play when it gets to be, you know, 20 degrees and I'm carrying in bibs and a, a parka and, and maybe some other insulation layer. Then that starts to build up pretty quick. So then what else? What are the other two two items on the on the potential list of gear? Bring any calls with you or anything like that? Or You know, I, I do use a grunt call and I use it occasionally. I really only ever use it if... I see a deer and I'm either trying to put them at ease or, or just trying to draw them over. Um, I use it a lot of times like early season because it's just kind of like a general, you know, contact noise. Uh, I haven't really had a ton of success using it in like the rut phases. I know other guys obviously have. I've pretty much given up on rattling antlers, at least here in the Midwest. I've never had it work. If I blind called with it, if I've seen a deer and tried to call, I just, I've never had it work. Uh, so I'm less apt to, to use that and, I really haven't done much on like the doe bleat side of things. So I feel like just like that nice little basic grunt tube is enough to where it's not really that hard for me to pack it in. It doesn't hurt to have it. And there's been occasions where it's come in handy. 
but that's about as generally as far as I'll, I'll get in the calling side of things. One thing I have started using more is uh, binoculars for the longest time. And maybe part of this is because I filmed my hunts and I felt like that was kind of dual purposing as optics is I used to just hunt without any binoculars at all. And in those close quarter scenarios, a lot of times you might feel like you don't need binoculars, but since I've started using them more and more, there's just, there's a lot of times where you get that thing where it's like, man, is that, is that a deer or is that just like, you know, a fall? Okay. It's just a fallen over log. Like it just looked just like a deer. Um, binoculars top out a ton with that. I'm able to scan areas. Like if I'm sitting on the edge of an Oak Island in that example, or I'm sitting on the edge of a clear cut in big woods, or if I'm in a river bottom area, like we're hunting in North Dakota and we're sitting on a clump of timber, but we got this like, you know, six foot high brush we're trying to look into being able to just pull up those binoculars and just scan that stuff makes a huge difference. And if you have binoculars that are high enough quality to where they have good light transmission and a good exit people, you can see better with those binoculars in low light than you can with your naked eye. And so there's been yep. times in the past where it's getting right just down to last light and you're about get ready to get your stuff all together and climb down the tree and you can hear those footsteps coming in. It's like, okay, well, great. Now I'm just going to sit up here and wait till they pass. And I might just see a dark blob moving across but with those binoculars. I pull them up. Okay. It's a, you know, 110 inch eight pointer. Like I wouldn't have known that without the binoculars. And so I start to use them more and more. And they just to the point now where they become a pretty vital piece of equipment for me. Sure. That's pretty cool. I got a good pair of binoculars. I invested in a decent setup for that. I got sick of not having any. And, uh, in fact, the property I was talking about where I saw those three bucks, those are all saw that I saw all those three binoculars and I caught, caught one with the naked eye and I could see it was a buck, but I didn't know what I was dealing with. And I put the binoculars on them and nothing else is really just entertaining for me to then just observe these guys in a space that I was hunting. They didn't know I was there. It was pretty cool just to watch and feel like, well, oh, there, there you are, you little asshole. I'm going to get you one of these days. <laughs> pretty good. So that's uh, that's a good piece of advice. How about weapons? What do you uh, what do you like shooting? I mean, I've seen you shoot everything from recurves to some pretty interesting looking compounds over the years. Yeah, Drew with Oak Tree uh, Dream is asking what you shoot. Also, that's a good question. Yeah, this year I bought a V three from Matthews, uh, the thirty one inch, and have it set up. It's probably like the closest to a Western or target style setup that I've shot, maybe since I've hunted mule deer in Colorado, where I have a, a longer, like a 12 inch front bar, 10 inch side bar. Uh, I've got it all weighted up. Um, I put a Garmin side on. It's basically like the kind of the, I don't know if I would say the, like the pinnacle, but it's probably the bow that I've had the most forgiveness with and the best ability to just like, you know, pull up and shoot basically any scenario. Uh, but I also have become a lot more proficient with the traditional side of things. And I'm always kind of fighting the, you know, which, which particular set of challenges do I want to have on this hunt? Do I want to bring out the traditional bow or is that just like too many things stacked against me? If I'm going out of state for a three day trip, like I'm more likely to bring the compound than the traditional bow. But if I'm hunting locally here, here in Minnesota where I can't run trail cameras, I don't really have a good idea of inventory, but I got a couple tags, like might be more likely to bring out the traditional bow on, on that type of a hunt. So I did quite a bit of testing with, I say testing, but it's really just me shooting in that, in this scenario, but with one of my really like pretty artsy wooden bows that I have from Acadian woods and I have a, a striker RK one, which is a aluminum riser longbow, And it's like a, a dipped predator camo. And then I have the bow that I built however many years ago. That's like a hill style, uh, with a slight reflex deflex. And that thing's just not forgiving to shoot at all. So I, I shoot it kind of for nostalgia every now and then, but really the most, the most, uh, the bow I'd feel the most comfortable with from the traditional side hunting with is that RK one, just because I got the best, I got the best string clearance when I shoot it. It's still pretty quiet. Um, shooting nine grains per pound. It's got a pretty reasonable trajectory for a traditional bow. And it's just more forgiving than the other one to where I can pull up and, and shoot it and have, you know, a good idea of what the gap should be 
and that arrow will go pretty much where I point it. Whereas sometimes with the the wood bow, for whatever reason, it's just less forgiving to to little things like oh, I was canting the bow five more degrees that time, or my torquing the grip a little bit more. I might have a shot at twenty yards that all three shots I group right in the center, and then I'll have one that hits four inches right. And the shot wasn't any different other than I was doing something different with my grip. Whereas I feel like the the striker was a little bit more forgiving to that type of thing. So I'll probably I'll probably do a more mix where some hunts I'll, I might bring the Matthews, other hunts I might bring the the recurve. And then I don't even know if I'll hunt with a rifle this year, just because I'm not sure if I might do I might do a late season or a late rut North Dakota hunt. If I do that, then that would be archery, and that would be during the same weekend as the Wisconsin firearms. So if I do that, then obviously I won't be rifle hunting, but I do have two muzzleloader hunts lined up and I haven't shot my muzzleloader in like seven years at least. So I'll be getting that back into, uh, back into gear. I got a whole bunch of muzzleloading stuff sitting around me that I'm going to go out and start doing some different testing on loads and, and be ready by the time December rolls around. Cool. Lots of stuff in the works. Did you think of a joke for us yet? No. <laughs> I don't have three plan jokes. I just I just wait for the perfect scenario to pop up and then I'll I'll put in a little one liner every now and then. You can ask the tethered guys, they'll they'll come up with some good ones I've said over the years, but I, I, can't, I can't just come up with one on the spot. <laughs> I said one when I say one in the and I said one in the last podcast. Well how's the, the Scotsman find sheep and tall grass? Oh god. Very satisfying. It's a good one. It's a good I got lots of dad jokes. That's my favorite one to tell anybody. Uh, what did What did Batman say to Robin to get him out of the car? Give up. Yep. Get out of the car. I was <laughs> 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 like, man, he must have said something clever. It's Batman. Just get out of the fucking car, Robin. <laughs> I didn't even say DIY that much, but I drank my beer. So sorry, everybody. That was uh, really yeah, coming on. We got, on a, we got a bunch of sober listeners out there. You got to start dropping yeah. more. To- yeah. So what, what, yeah, what, from a DIY perspective, you built your own bow from what I just heard. What other DIY, Greg just DIY'd his hunting saddle platform. You want to talk about that for a second, Mr. Other DIY? It's not that hard. If you know how to use a sawzall or a hacksaw or any kind of cutting device to cut aluminum, you have access. Don't downplay it. It's not that hard. But there's, you're talking to OKS Hunt. You're talking to a service tech (laughs) that did fabricating. Well, not that hard it's not for that you. Hard That'd for be me. like if I said, oh, great, See, why don't you make you me this video? And it's, it's not that hard. Garrett's the engineer. He's at engineer level. <laughs> me, I'm service guy level. You, you're the apprentice. Yeah, I, I'm going to just That's pay everybody else to do my shit. not paying attention to anything we're doing. <laughs> I'm the customer in this scenario. Yeah, How much is it going to cost, Greg? That's a, but for no, seriously. Extra. What did you do to build that platform? Like I said, it was just a matter of cutting some pieces and using what I had. What did you have? I had the tops off of an old, old bone. Why are you? It's not that big of a deal. You guys, Greg built his own platform. He doesn't want to talk about it. Dude, it's, <laughs> there's nothing exciting about it. I, I can't mean, wait for people to listen to this and give you shit. Old, it, it's old hunk of cast aluminum. It's, it's from one of the original Lone Wolf cast stands. Okay. When they, when they had the V bracket right on the seat. Yep. And so... I swapped the post and seat off of that stand. And the cam's nice? Yeah, it does. Okay. Yep. It's enough bite to it. Yep. I bought uh press that I actually that. bought the XOP Batwing because it's got more teeth on it. Okay. And I I had to fabricate it a little bit, do some customization to get it to fit that. So it wasn't just that straightforward. Come on. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> we call it's, those the we call those the Clem style platforms. Yeah. The Clem. See, I don't know that. But I it doesn't have it doesn't have adjustability, right? You have to you can't level it. No, there's no leveling. Uh, nope. That's one nope. thing about the one I'm getting from from uh, yeah. Lone Wolf Custom Gear that it's got this little notch where I can it can it can do that based on the, the arc of the tree or yeah, the angle. I'm not leveling that thing. There's no bolt that's going in there to level it up or down. So it's very very basic, yeah. very minimal, minimalistic, but a lot of the trees that I kind of have picked out are pretty straight. Pretty straight. Yeah. Garrett, so. do you do you put your platform on a downward angle a little bit? No, nope. perfectly flat. Perfectly flat? I feel like some people said they like it to be angled down just a touch. For yeah. like a stand. I don't know well, why, I don't know, but I've so not the, done it. No. So the thing is, 
if you have if you have a platform that is perfectly level, then that gives you the ability, regardless of what that tree is doing lean wise, that you mm-hmm. can you can put your feet flat on that platform and pivot if you need to. So if you want to pull yourself up vertical to so nice close tight to the tree, then that gives you a little bit more opportunity to do like a weak side shot, or especially if you're on like a forward leaner, then that just gives you a lot of opportunity to stand there and just maneuver and pivot. Cause you're not going to be like necessarily sitting on that type of a tree. Whereas if you okay. have that downward angle, it's going to be more comfortable because it's a more natural angle for your foot and your ankle. So it might feel more comfortable, but it's not as functional, at least not in my opinion, because you, you can't as easily do that vertical rotation when you're standing on it. That's good to know. Hey, we do have a caller. Uh, we got Eric Malcolm. He's got a question for, it looks like he's at a green bay. Hey, Eric, you're live on the OKS Hunter it's, it's podcast. It's Derek Melkor. Oh, well, it's freaking you. transcription does that crap. <laughs> Derek, what's up? <laughs> sorry about that, Eric. <laughs> I'm also sorry How's it going, about guys? that. Good, buddy. <laughs> I was going to say you got a great name, but I guess not. <laughs> hey, easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I just, uh, I guess I got a question for everybody, but especially for Garrett. Uh, Garrett, first off, just wanted to say, all the stuff that you've put out on your channel is really helpful, really useful. Love it. Great job. And congrats on your awesome buck you got last year in Wisconsin. That thing was a beauty. Appreciate um, it. I'm working on some, yeah, uh, working on some out-of-state hunts. I've been going down hunting Illinois the last couple of years, doing some public land. I don't get any large uh, vacation time off. Uh, I teach at a high school, so I get you know, I can take a day or two here and there. Otherwise, it's kind of weekends. Yep. Um, so I'm running down, doing kind of short-term hunts, but I get to go down a couple of times. So scenario I kind of came across today. I'm actually driving back from scouting today, um, and I, I found some good, what I would consider some great buck bedding areas. Uh, top of a hill, brushy knob, kind of CRP, mixed in with some cedars. The sign was there, so I kind of scouted my way into the bedding, you know, following rub lines, found the bed, and my nature as a public land hunter is to be a little bit aggressive. So I'm finding trees that are very close, kind of thinking about morning hunts just with a limited time frame. I'm just wondering, since you have a wealth of experience hunting out of state, how aggressive do you get with areas that you've pre-scouted? Um, I know like going in blind, you know, based off map, I've done that a lot and kind of make your best guess and use it as an observation, but on an area you've scouted and say, you've got three, three days to hunt. How aggressive do you, do you like to go in? Are you jumping in on top? Are you playing back a little bit? What do you, what's your style tend to be? I like to be probably aggressive out of state than I do at home just because you got limited time. So if it's a place where you're going and you're, oh, I'm going to get down there for an early season, three day hunt. And then I'm going to get down there for three days in the rut. And then I get down there for three days, late season. Like those are totally different patterns. And so I feel like you can take each of those days and just, I mean, yep. you still got to be, you could be smart about it and don't just like go all in where, you know, you're going to get winded. Um, but yeah, especially if you got, if you got cover like wind noise, like a light drizzle or whatever, use that to your advantage and get super close. Um, that's what I like to do. And uh, like perfect example, like North Dakota, when we go out there, it's still early enough where you got that nice canopy in the, in the trees. And if you get any wind, it just makes a ton of cover. You got nice, you know, grass, you don't have crunchy leaves everywhere and you can get really close to these deer when they're bedded that time of year. So if it was an early season hunt in particular, I'd be a little bit more, I tend to be like super, super aggressive. having the leaves on the trees really helps with that too, as far as their visibility from the bed, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, it does for sure. Um, it helps in a lot of ways. That's probably the biggest, that's probably the biggest thing I like about hunting early season. Uh, even more than like the, the bed to food pattern stuff is just that if you're trying to do that kind of a sit where it's a very pinpoint, a pinpoint setup and you're trying to get close to bedding, there's no easier time to do it than early season, late season. It's a whole different scenario. What about the mosquitoes, you guys? Like, come on. You're going to have to man up and deal with some mosquitoes. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Just hunt, hunt far enough north that you don't have them. <laughs> ah, there you go. There's a lot of mosquitoes up there. I think there's more north this year <laughs> than there say. is down here. Seriously, we've had such a We've had a, a pretty mild Oh, well, so We haven't far. had any rain. Knock on wood. Let's just keep it that way. I just doused myself in bug spray. 
Like I, I figure if the deer can smell the bug spray, it can smell my human scent anyway. So I just load up and, and it oh. is what it is. Yeah. I get, I get pretty smelly probably on these out of state trips. Cause I'll just sleep, like my, I'll sleep with my clothes on and, and get back out there and out the next day. So it's raunchy, huh? Yeah. Deer's like, what the hell? That's Sasquatch. I'm not even worried. I've seen him before. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, good question, man. I don't have an answer for that one. I know he said it's for everybody. I'm, but I'm not going to take a stab at that. Thanks for calling. It sounds like you're driving. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Have a good night. You thanks, too, buddy. Man. Thanks for calling in. See ya. Good to get the, the compliment to you. You put out really good content, man. You really do. Yeah. You have for some time. It's it's very, you know, it's a labor of love. Maybe you, you get some accolades for it and, and some sponsorship and some dollars. But honestly, I'm sure the intrinsic reward you get, I mean, you helped a lot of, you've helped a lot of people. And you continue to do so. So we're happy to have you on tonight. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, with that, uh, I guess let's just, I don't know, the the shameless plugs. Let's tell people where to find you because you do have a number of different endpoints and, and channels for people to look into where you are. So can you share all of them with everybody? Yep. So the place you can find most of the content that I produce is on YouTube. If you type in DIY Sportsman, that's my channel. And that's where you see all the hunting videos and a lot of the gear reviews, the how-to videos, the setup type videos, gear breakdowns, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I'll post on Instagram is probably like my second, second most you know popular platform in terms of like at least how often I'm posting to it. And really Facebook for me is just, it's just like a repost of Instagram. So if you're going to follow me somewhere, it'd be better off on Instagram than Facebook. Uh, but on Instagram is DIY underscore sportsman. And then I have a podcast that I run through the Sportsman's Nation podcast network. So you can find it either by searching Sportsman's Nation podcast network on their whitetail feed, or you can just type in DIY Sportsman podcast and it'll pop up as its own feed. Um, I'm on the Vitals Live. If you guys are familiar with that platform, uh, it's a, a paid webinar platform. And I'll do, I'd say probably like at least once every two months, sometimes every once in a month, I'll, I'll get on there and do like an hour long webinar. I have one coming up. Uh, a week from today and I'm trying to think of where else I'm forgetting. We're happy website, to have you back. Yeah. Website, but that's, I don't really post too much to the website, but yeah, those, okay. those would be kind of the main platforms. That's no, good to know. Your YouTube channel is very active. Um, I spent some time on it you know, over the years and, and, and kind of submerged myself over the past couple of days in preparation for this. So it's good stuff. And it's good to see you're doing stuff with Spartan Forge too. We, we obviously like those guys a lot over there. So, uh, that's exciting. Are you going to be in Pennsylvania for their veterans hunt or? Yeah. Yeah, I will be cool. So that should be fun. Yeah. Uh, if I can make it, if my wife doesn't completely try to kill me for doing something like that after her third baby comes, <laughs> we'll see what it looks like, but yeah, man, thanks for joining us. I'm going to end the live broadcast. There's no other calls in queue. So with that, we'll end the stream here and then this will be in podcast land tonight. So thanks everybody for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah, never pass, right? We're getting used to saying this other yeah. stuff. Shoot deer. Passing that shooter back. All right. All right. This beer goes out to the one listener from Benton, Illinois, out there in Big Buck Country. With this beer, you're going to be blessed with an awesome hunting season. And just remember, good things come to those who shoot straight. What's up, everyone? Anthony Heller here with Deervane, and this week's tip of the week is related to planning out your early season strategy. So one of the things is if you've been hunting public land or even you have your pieces of private or whatever, um, if you've been doing it for a while, you have a lot of stand locations or tentative or opportunity type spots where you can go. Um, for me, I have probably... I don't know, close to 60 or 70 stand locations on Onyx across, you know, the piece of public by my house that I hunt. And then I have another, you know, 20 to 30 or so on my piece of private. So one of the things I like to do in early season is when I'm planning for early season, where I'm going to sit opening weekend, where I'm going to sit the mornings or if I can catch a cold front or whatever, is to go through and pick, you know, I know realistically between September 15th and October 15th, that's roughly 30 days which means there's probably, what would that be, uh, 10, 10 or 11 evening sits, 10 or 11 morning sits, and then maybe 
you know, a few spots in between where I can sneak out during the week. So let's just say 15 sits overall. So what I like to do is, and that would be, I mean, 15 sits would be a lot in, in the first month. But what I like to do anyway, is I like to pick the 10 best spots that I think exist for a Southwest wind. Southwest wind is the dominant wind in Wisconsin or in the upper Midwest in that first portion of the season, in that first month of season. You're mainly going to get southwest winds. Northwest winds, I'm going to plan about five sits for them. And those are going to be my best spots for early season for cold front activity. So essentially, you know, great, great spots to enter and exit food sources um, on a northwest wind where you think a buck might get up, up early that day. So I have 10 southwest wind spots. I have five northwest wind spots, which usually bring in that cold front. And then that's how I plan that out. And I change my, my southwest wind spots yellow and my northwest wind spots blue. So that way, when a Thursday rolls around and I'm like, all right, where am I sitting this weekend? What's my game plan? What am I doing? I can look at that and really quickly and easily decipher which sits or which spot I'm going to go to based on the weather. I can pick the two stand locations that I want to go where I want to check and then I'm out the door and running. So that is my early season strategy for narrowing down where I wanna sit. I, it might be a little bit in depth and crazy for you, but at least the idea is there. Plan for Southwest winds, hope for Northwest cold fronts. All right, catch you guys later. Okay, as Hunter.